Welcome to PR for Humans with me, Mike Sargent, the show for the best communicators in the business. In each episode, I'll be listening to their secrets and stories, using their insights in PR for Humans, the book I'm writing about how to cut through, build and defend your reputation. Do follow me on Twitter at PR for Humans, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Visit my website, sergeantleaders.com. You spell sergeant just like the police and the army do. Today, a real treat, Jeremy Bowen, the BBC's Middle East editor. I had breakfast with Jeremy more than 10 years ago at the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem. I was new to reporting on the Middle East, and in a captivating 20 minutes, he gave me such a useful summary back then. Now he's been generous again in coming on this show. So, one of the legends of journalism, and definitely one of my heroes. Here's Jeremy Bowen. Well, Jeremy Bowen, we're sitting in front of your, your crackling fire here, so it's a genuine fireside chat. Um, and we're talking to the best storytellers in the business on this podcast, and you're one of those. So, a, ridic- a ridiculous... You though, you've made the list. A ridiculously broad question, perhaps, but let's start off by asking you, what makes a good story? What are the ingredients? Well, they vary. You know, you can't be hard and fast on it, but I think they have to be... The ingredients have to be something, have to be things that, 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 that can prick the imagination of the audience that's dealing with the story, that's, that, that I'm telling the story to. I think that that's a very important thing. There has to be some sort of important and distinguishing factor that makes you think, well, wait a minute, that's interesting. Hmm, that's, gosh. So if that's happening, what else is happening? And And then you can... You can take it from there. And because actually when you do a, well, what I do, a news story, it shouldn't be that difficult because what you should be able to do is, first of all, clarify what you want to say in your own mind, uh, work out what that story means. And then, well, it's a bit like, you could say it's a bit like telling someone a story in the pub. You can say, you'll, you'll never guess what happened. And you know what happened after that? And in my opinion, what this means is that it could happen again, you know, or words to that, that effect. And do you have in mind uh, someone in the audience? Do you have in mind someone that you're actually telling the story to on a personal level, or could, could it be anyone? No, I don't. I don't have a, a, an imaginary person who, who would uh, appreciate the story. What I do have in mind is, is a phrase that I read somewhere or someone told me once, which is, you should never underestimate the intelligence of your audience. But you should never overestimate their knowledge. And if you're dealing with something which can seem alien and foreign, as I've done for, for most of my career in the Middle East and in loads of other places, uh, I, I, I don't assume a great deal of knowledge of the the conflict or the you know the war or the election or whatever's going on but i do i do tend to assume that the audience is committed and would like to know more about it and you know my view is that if they if they're going to sit through a you know i do quite long pieces on the 10 o'clock news you know sometimes quite four five six minutes that's long it's that's long. long that's, long that's very news. very yeah. long in news and if my view is if someone's prepared to sit through all of that they are going to have a little bit of a you know, in a good attention span. But you've also got to make it interesting. Mm. And so it's a number of things. It's making it interesting, which means getting the right ingredients for the story. 
the right characters, the right pictures, the right sounds. And then it's a question of how you tell it in terms of words. Yep. And that's got to be, you know, it's got to be really clear and direct and concise. I think that it is in a way easier to write a script which is full of jargon and full of unnecessary complications uh, because sometimes people can write that without really understanding what it is they're fully talking about and they use jargon as a replacement for understanding. So when I'm writing a script, my I really try and make them sound very simple but with a, a lot of content in them. And it's, you know, I sweat over them. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a process, boiling it down and boiling it down and boiling it down because in the TV business, you know, we've got to keep things very tight and very often your first draft might be quite long so you've got to boil it down and boil it down and boil it down. No, I don't need these words. I don't need that sentence. Be ruthless. But at the same time, tell it in such a way that it's not difficult to follow. And that's easy to explain, very hard to do. And th there's always this thing in business or in other walks of life, the curse of knowledge. If, if you know too much, it gets harder and harder to, to tell the story. And, and you, you know incredible amount about the Middle East now. You've written books on it, you know, the history inside out. And yet you've got to get it down to, well, four minutes on a good day, sometimes yeah. two and a half minutes. Yeah. And you're not going to please everyone. Well, first of all, you've got to get it down. Um, and yes, and that means uh, focusing very much on what it is you want to say. You know, what is sometimes it's a good exercise to do a little summary of what your argument is, you know, which in broadcasting business we might call the intro. Yeah. Uh, the bit that this presenter reads out in the studio. Uh, so, you know, you've got to focus your your idea of where you want to go if you start putting the story together and you don't know where the end is then I guarantee to you you're going to have some problems and you need to have a structure in your head and this is something I, I find when I'm trying to write speeches for CEOs or articles for people or, or reports is, is just getting that sense of what is the headline what are the first few lines actually going to say and that clarity of what, where the story arc is going, yeah, where yeah. you're starting and where you're, you're going to end up, which people find very, very difficult if they haven't been in newsrooms and haven't been a journalist to understand. Yeah, you've got to... And, and I think a lot of it's about... Um, it's, it's really about focusing and being quite ruthlessly concise if you need to be. And, you know, even if you love that line that you've written, if it doesn't work, cut it out. You know, kill, you've got to kill your babies. Uh, and it's, um, it's a sad fact. And your other part of the question was, sometimes people don't like what they hear. Mm. That happens a lot, you know. In, well, particularly, particularly in the Middle East. Particularly in the Middle East, and particularly with the Israelis and the Palestinians. The, I, get, I get a lot of abuse. I mean, I've got very thick skin now. It doesn't really bother me, but I don't like looking at it. I don't like seeing it. So I stay away from Twitter sometimes if I think it's, I'm going through a particularly troll-like period and you are a target because, you know, partly because you're, you're so, so so closely associated with the Middle East but also you're the BBC yeah absolutely and uh, in some countries people believe that the BBC is um, a branch of British foreign policy which it isn't but people believe that uh, and also I think that what sometimes in terms of what I do and particularly the Israelis and the Palestinians, but not just. Both sides want to be seen as victims 
and to, you know, to have their victimhood acknowledged. They, they don't want you to be fair. Most, I mean, some do, but most people, I'd say, the kind of people who complain to me, they're not interested in me being fair or impartial, which is the things we're, we're meant to be and which is what I try to be. In fact, I go so far as to say that people who send in tweets about, uh, post tweets about, you know, my shortcomings as a reporter, uh, they, they are the enemies of impartiality. Um, but, you know, we have to, you know, you've got to put up with that. That's part of the, um, part of the rough and tumble of, of what we do. And I have, as I say, I've, I don't care about it so much because, uh, you know, I don't, I think you've got to, you've got to just take a deep breath and suck it up sometimes. And there will be stories where you have to not exactly express a view, but that kind of on the one hand this, on the other hand, that isn't enough. I don't do on the one hand, on the other hand. I, I mean, one, one of the things about having the word editor in my BBC title means that really I don't do that. Uh, I get, I've, I'm given, we have to stay impartial, but I have a little bit more latitude to um, take the audience a bit by the hand and take them in what I believe to be the... the the direction towards understanding and um, I mean for example let me give you a, let me give you a, yeah uh, so I never say and I think I've failed if I was tempted to say on the one hand on the other hand the truth lies somewhere in between <laughs> no it doesn't the truth lies you know there or there mm. and you have to say what the truth is and you have to show why you think that you can't just say as if you're in the pub or something well you know what this is all about is you have to explain your your reasoning it's a bit like you know my i've got teenage kids and my younger one still does maths and when they do exams they have to show the working out i have to show my workings you know show how i got from a to b and on to the answer uh and that's sometimes difficult because you know we're pushed for time always in terms of the duration of the piece uh, but for me uh, it's important to do that and it's important I think it's part of my job to try and point people in the direction of what's what's really happening even if one party or the other gets really hot under the collar about it and in the Middle East you've got to provide that you know, the big picture analysis of a yeah. very complicated yeah. uh, region of the world, an important region of the world. But you've also got to be a, a good reporter in the sense of finding the, the human interest stories to tell that, that you know, the big, mm. the big picture. And mm. it's that classic kind of soaring and diving between the, the big analysis and the very tight focus that is the essence, I think, of good television reporting and broadcasting. Absolutely. So how, how do you work out whether you, you're getting that balance right? Because sometimes a human story is so powerful, it, it can carry four minutes on its own. Yeah, you've got, well, then it's all about the scripting. You see, it's my view that if you're trying to, to analyse what's happening in a complicated part of the world, the Middle East, um, or some other place, you need something to help drive your analysis. If you just have a collection of, you know, shots of people in the street or uh, library shots, stuff from the archive, you might be able to get a correct script together that's not, that, that, that someone might conceivably 
sit down and read. It's more of a sort of newspaper exercise. But what you won't get is something that, that, that is working with the medium. And to work with the medium, you need the sound, the pictures, uh, you need the interviewees, you need the characters. So I think that my most successful pieces, I think, have been ones where they've either had the dynamic of the hard news pictures of the day to tell the story and tell the analysis as well as the story. And what I try to do is weave in what this means with the events of the day. Uh, when I first got this job, there was a war in Lebanon, 2006, and I hadn't been doing the job very long, and the BBC sent millions of people over to cover this war. And their idea was that I, as the newly appointed Middle East editor, would do the second package. It was always the lead story. So they, they'd have something from on the ground, a report from someone, a reporter, and then here's our Middle East editor, basically to tell you what all that meant. And you know, I felt I was really angry about it. I was, you know, I was, I'd say to them, are you saying that, that you get the first package People don't understand what the hell it's all about. So here's Jeremy to tell you what it's all about. <laughs> uh, and so what? So I, I, it took me a while to win the argument. <coughs> I certainly didn't in that 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 year. But to get the main pictures of the day, and and weave my analysis through the account of, of what happened. And also, if it's not a top news story, you can you can do the same thing, or I can try and do the same thing, in the case of a particular say, a human interest story. The one I did one the other week um, about a girl, 16-year-old girl. She's 17 now. She's, she's had a birthday. Uh, Ahed Tamimi, who slapped an Israeli soldier. And the story was not all that it seemed. Uh, she's in jail, awaiting trial, serious charges. Uh, and there's a big controversy, particularly in Israel, about just exactly what she stands for uh, and what they should do with her quite a lot of people wanted to be kept in jail for quite a long time for doing what she did but it was also see what I felt about that story as soon as, as soon as I saw it I said we should go and do that because to start with it's a very understandable mini saga mm -hmm. about what happened to this girl to her family her mother who's also in jail with her her dad who's a sort of full-time protester and activist and and the boy and the boy, there's a boy too. There was a cousin who was who was shot in the face and into mm. his brain uh, by an Israeli soldier with a rubber-coated metal bullet, which happened very soon, just before the girl Ahed Tamimi uh, went and walloped this Israeli soldier. And you know, to be fair to the Israeli soldier, he didn't use inappropriate force or anything like that. He sort of tried to fend her off a bit, but. Yeah, he was a great big bloke, armed to the teeth, and uh, I think he knew that a small 16-year-old was not going to be a real threat to him. Um, but anyway, I could see that there would be ways of telling that story and weaving through it uh, some things that the audience needed to know about the current state of relations in the West Bank between Israelis and Palestinians and the fact that there's been 50 years of occupation. And, I, and it's not reported anything like as much as well, it Well, we don't, because the thing about... I've been, you know, I lived there in the 90s. I've, I've done this story for so long. The thing about it is that it's always the same. 
the issues, sorry, behind them are always the same. So what I look for is something which will raise it above the everyday to enable us to do a story about it. Because sadly, apart from moments like that where I did this piece about the Tamimis, you know, we tend to do things just when everything blows up. And if you go to your viewers and you say, effectively say to them, well, you know that place you may remember from news stories some years ago that you've heard virtually nothing from since? Well, guess what? It's caught fire again. And so, I mean, so no, no wonder people sometimes get the wrong idea of how the region is. And this, is, this must be a frustration for you, the fact that when things are bad, you get called in. When things are improving you don't necessarily get called. Well, I, I remember being in, in, in Baghdad in, in 2008, yeah. and there was still a lot of violence at that time, a lot of people getting killed, but the situation was improving. That was the perception. So it wasn't getting on the telly. How do you cope with that? Well, I've been doing this a long time, so I cope pretty well with most things. <laughs> but uh, it's frustrating. You know, if there's a story... To be fair to the editor of the 10 o'clock news who I would say is my main client um, I I with my team we pretty much get on what we want to get on um, but it is harder certainly uh, you've got to get make find a way of getting an interesting twist in it making it making it cut through um, if it's the story itself inherently doesn't seem to be doing it you know, you, if, if, if you're in a place where suddenly there's a bomb and 85 people get killed, and you, the most horrific... Well, I'll give you an example. I was in Baghdad a year or two ago. There was a massive double or treble suicide bomb or car bomb right in the centre of the city. 300-plus people killed, I think. And so, I mean, that's just, just going there to the scene, even after they've cleared the bodies away and the gore and seeing the people mourning and praying and lighting cat, that of itself has got, you know, it's a story. You can see it. Um, but I, I think that sometimes the big challenge is getting interesting things on when big events like that aren't happening. Yes. What about the challenge of, of putting yourself in harm's way? You, you, know, you, you wrote an entire book, War Stories, about yes. coming to terms with the yeah. dangers that a foreign correspondent faces and, and you said, talked about taking a step back as the editor and being the, 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 the person who analyzes the big picture but also needing to to get close to the human story and that gets you back towards the path of danger on, on occasion yeah, sometimes yeah and what, one of the conclusions I, I came to in journalism was that for me personally no story was worth dying for um, I'd agree so how, how do you approach that question these well days. that age-old question is the story worth dying for i think any person who isn't completely insane would say absolutely not but there are people who would then go on to say and i probably used to be like this um because i've been covering wars for many years um i would probably have gone on to say but i'm not going to die today because i'm much more sensible than the others where i'm going to be i'm going to work very hard at keeping out of trouble or I'm not going to go to that place where those crazy photographers went yesterday and got into trouble, got shot up. Uh, I mean, that's really... Yes, you can be careful. You can try and minimise risks. But I have learned in many war zones that you can also die in a second. 
so how do I rationalize that? I'm not sure I can, to be honest. I think the thing is, I think the closest I can get to it, it is saying that I've accepted that in an area where there's a lot of trouble going on, I can't credibly report it without being prepared to take some risks uh, along the way. And, you know, I don't go, I, I really don't, I mean, when I was 30 in Bosnia, or, or, you know, the first Gulf War or whatever, I mean, I was really happy to take risks. In fact, I enjoyed it. Um, and I, I really wanted to do the story and do it well, but I also, I quite like the whole experience of, uh, you know, living on the edge and being in my own little war movie. And I emphatically don't feel like that now. I don't like going to overly dangerous places, but I do sometimes. I was in Mosul last year on, on the front line, you know, where they were, there's a proper big war street fight going on. Um, but I, yeah, I do think that um, I can't really, I can't sit in London and look at the world through a computer screen and retain, I think if I have any credibility with the audience, a lot of it comes from the fact that they know I actually go to places. And there was a line from, I think it was from that book that, that stayed with me that um, for you to have your, your best day, someone's got to have their worst ever day. Yeah, or their last one. Or their last one. Yeah. Which, which, which did, did, did... I always used to feel me. that strongly. Uh, sadly, you know, and, and so that's why you, you've got to have a good journalistic rationale because, you know, we come often into people's lives when they are the worst stuff you can imagine has happened to them. Members of the family killed, the house burned down or blown up. Uh, and so you can't just be there to fill time or, uh, or because you get th the th a thrill out of being in a war zone. You've actually got to have a strong journalistic reason for asking them things. Because it's intrusive. Yeah. Let's talk about interviews quickly. And I yes. try and advise uh, chief executives and others how to, yeah. how to conduct themselves in media interviews, what journalists really want, what they're looking for. And you've interviewed a, a lot of people over the years, um, some heroes, a few villains as well, yes, no yeah. doubt. What, what, is there any advice you'd give to, to someone if they're facing uh, the, the camera for the first time or they're on the other end of the microphone? Well... Try and be yourself. Don't try and be someone you're not. Um, have an idea in your mind what it is you want to say and what the messages you want to get over. Um, that doesn't mean to. That doesn't mean answering to every question. Yes, strong and stable government is what we need. <laughs> Brexit uh, means Brexit. Yeah, well, Brexit means Brexit. Or we want a red one. You know, slogans don't really work. Sound bites. Sound bites are good. Yeah. Sometimes though, people who don't know the media that well, they say, they, they say, oh yeah, do you want quite short answers? And I say, yeah, be good. And then they come out with five seconds. Because actually, <laughs> say a 15 second answer is, is actually quite long. It's probably a good three sentences. And as long as you know what you're saying, you can say a lot in 15, 20 seconds. You can say a lot there. Um, Very few business people can say a lot in 15 <laughs> seconds, but that's another question. Well, that's why they should think 
talk to people like you and uh, and work out in advance what it is they want to say uh, because I think it is possible to, to boil boil it all down and um, yeah and and don't try and hide things if you don't to, don't if, lie don't lie and if you don't have spin too if you much. feel not too much people see through it these days mm. it's not credible and you know and if you've got something to hide my advice would be don't do the interview <laughs> <laughs> But there's got to be it's got to be real. It's got to be rooted in, in fact, and and there's got to be, a, be a, real, a, yeah. a story uh, that that you're yes. you're trying to tell. I mean, what do you think? This is a final question, really. What what do you think about the quality of of storytelling in in political life or, or business life? I mean, you focus on the Middle East, an area with such rich stories, such history, um, but most of the corporate world, the political world, the communication skills maybe leave something to. Be designed. Uh, well, you know that people are not necessarily professional communicators, so you can't expect too much. That's why they need some help sometimes. Um, I think in the political world, there's a absolute among some politicians, there's an absolute failure to to come up with a convincing story as to why people should support them, uh, because. The worst thing is when you hear on the Today programme or whatever, uh, politicians flamming around, not answering the question. The, questions, the question is, is asked again and they don't answer it again. What are they, in what sense do they think that that is convincing or going to inspire confidence in the electorate? In what sense do they think that's good? It won't at all. Um, so I think politicians particularly have a lot to be desired. I have, I, I have met uh, some very articulate CEOs and people who really can, in business, who, who really can put over a, you know, a vision of what they want from their staff or from, you know, I do, I do a certain amount of speaking and so I meet people like that. And, uh, and so I think actually maybe in business you need a bit more imagination perhaps than some politicians seem to seem to have and I so I think I, th I have a sense that good speakers in business can can actually be very good yes some can and the ones that can tend to to show where they've come from give us something about them personally and where they're going to that vision so it's that quite future. authentic it's authentic but they can show us the future somewhere we can visualize yeah. it and that's the key the key quality that I try to emphasize. No, I think that's a very good thought, and that's really what politicians should be able to do. You know, it's their job should be all about the future, but they get bogged down in other stuff, and they don't want to pre prejudice the arguments they're going to have to have with their colleagues by speaking to the electorate in a direct way. You know, one of the reasons why Corbyn did unexpectedly well in the last election was that people thought he was authentic. People thought well I may not really agree with this guy but at least he appears to be telling the truth as far as you know he's being honest anyway I may not agree with him but he seems to be an honest man and you know, I think it's a sad commentary that that people can't assume automatically that a politician's honest mm. Jeremy Byrne it's been fascinating thank you very much pleasure Jeremy Bowen's one of those people, a bit like David Attenborough, with a voice and delivery that seems to carry such integrity and trust. It was great catching up with him, 
I'd love you all to share this episode of the podcast far and wide because we can all learn from people like Jeremy who've seen and done so much and yet kept their fundamental decency. Well, that's it for today. Please do listen in next time to the PR for Humans podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Goodbye.